Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast here on episode 214. We've got a great guest for you today. We have a, uh, a guy that I've known for many, many years and uh, who uses speaking in kind of a different way than the way that uh, a lot of guests have used it in the past that we've talked to. Before we get to that, if you haven't checked out our free tool agent, make sure you stop by and check that out. It's a database of over a thousand different events and conferences that are looking for speakers just like you. So free tool where you can find events that are looking for speakers just like you. Again, stop by and check it out over at myspeakingagent.com. Again, that is myspeakingagent.com. So today we are talking with Thomas Frank. And Thomas actually went through uh, one of our training programs, Booked and Paid to Speak, a couple of years ago. I met I met Thomas actually when he was in college. I was speaking at a gig. Uh, he was a college student. Uh, we'll talk more about that story in a second. And then uh, we just kind of stayed in touch and he's been extremely successful, now has a, a very successful YouTube channel. So in this conversation, we talk about how he uses speaking for more than just financial benefit. So speaking is just one way that he helps build his audience and build the business in other ways. Let's talk about how you can use YouTube as a tool for building your audience, for finding and booking potential speaking gigs. We talk about best practices for creating YouTube videos that generate more interest and views. So Thomas is to talk to when it comes to all things YouTube. So a lot of great stuff here on using YouTube for a marketing channel. All right, let's get right into it. Here's this conversation with Thomas Frank. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here, joined by my buddy Thomas Frank. And we're going to be talking about all things speaking and uh, YouTube today. So uh, excited to have uh, Thomas on the show. So how are you, man? Good. I thought this was going to be a gardening show, though. I'm oh, dude. Dude, put your, your shovel and your seeds, and I, I don't even know what other gardening terms are that I could I could potentially pull out here. But um, gloves. gloves, yeah, you got to have those things. Yeah, green thumb, that will drop that. So Thomas and I actually go way back, so to speak, and have hung out yeah. in, in person several times. And how did we first meet? This is a good story. We, we're coming up on, I think, eight years. Our eight-year anniversary. We've known each other, Yeah. When I was a student at Iowa State University, I think that was back when you were doing a lot more speaking at schools. All the business empire stuff had kind of was in the future at the time. And I was uh, what they called a cyclone aide. So mm-hmm. I was kind of the orientation assistant. I was helping put together some of the programs for new students. And they said, hey, one thing we want you guys to do is hire a speaker to come do a session on personal finance as sort of like a new initiation for all the new students coming in. So we found you. And I was given the privilege of driving you around in a golf cart. And is, uh, I think also towing. Yeah, it was a fun day. Yeah, and yeah. I, I saw your speech, I think, five or six times. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> same talk over and over and over. Yeah, it was because yeah. you would have been, what, a sophomore at the time? Uh, I was going into my sophomore year, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I guess eight years ago or so. So, at the time, I'd been speaking a lot 
at a lot of different colleges and universities. And Iowa State University is one that I'd go to pretty much every single August and every January. Mm-hmm. Amazing people to work with and, and loved going up there. But yeah, we I think we crossed bridges that maybe the first time I was up there and spoke for the next several years after that, we'd meet up each time. So at the time you were a college student, were you interested in speaking at all? Because I remember we talked a little bit about it, but speaking was definitely something that became bigger on your radar at the, eventually. Yeah, I was a little bit. I did some speaking in high school. It was part of the Business Professionals of America Club. Yeah. So I was, I was actually an officer. So I got to speak to about 500 kids every semester when we do the meetings and stand-ups. But to be honest, my goal going into college was to be the IT guy working in the basement. I watched the matrix. I saw a tank with all the computers and all the code coming down and I wanted to be that guy. So speaking was like, uh, maybe I'll have to, you know, give a presentation to the board sometime, but for the most part, I want just people leave me alone so I can deal with all these network cables. And it wasn't until I did my first internship about a year after we met, realized that I didn't like being a cubicle monkey, realized I didn't like working with networks or any of that, where I started getting into blogging and the podcasting side and thinking about speaking more seriously. Yeah. And so you created at the time a blog that has since become a a very significant blog, which we'll we'll talk about more, but collegeinfogeek.com. What was the thought behind whenever you started that? And what were you hoping to to get out of it? Oh, that was actually born out of rejection. So that same summer I was doing the Cyclonade thing. I was thinking, you know, they just, they ran me through a semester of training where I learned everything there is to know about this school and everything that there is to know about the questions students are going to ask me, you know, how do I deal with homesickness? How do I stay on top of my homework? How do I make friends? So uh, at the time I had also been reading this blog called hack college because I wanted to hack college. And at the end of my freshman year, they put out this call for new writers. It was one of those four students by students kind of deals. So the actual two founders had been sort of kicked out of their own venture and they needed to replace those people on the writing team. So I sent in and you know, resume application and uh, this fully fledged guest post. And I didn't get the spot. So I just thought, well, I heard WordPress is easy to put up. Why not make my own blog? And at the time it was really just like, I want to share what I'm doing to be a better student. And maybe this will be useful for my resume later on. Right. So you start the, you start the blog, the blog's going, at what point did you, did you start to think through, okay, maybe speaking is something that could fit into what I'm doing here. It's a good question. I think one of the first, at least from memory right now, one of the first gigs I had came from the ISU Honors Association. And they asked me to give a talk. I think uh, it was because I was an RA for the Honors House on campus. And uh, the coordinator for that program was one of my residents. So he asked me, hey, do you want to do a talk? I said, sure. I put together this talk on personal branding. And uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. So that just sort of planted a seed in my head. Speaking is fun. I get this sort of rush on stage and I heard that people can get paid. Right. And I remember having a conversation with you at the Grove Cafe about like, how do yeah. you, how do you charge people? How do you find people that are actually gonna, you know, pay you to stand on stage and act like you know what you're talking about? Right, right. So I remember we had some of those early conversations and I remember you you got after, I remember you, or actually one of the early ones to join uh, our training program, Booked and Paid to Speak and had gone I through that. I was part of that before it existed. Yeah, you were way back when you were in the test group. It was an Evernote document when I bought it. Was it really? (laughs) Yeah. I I think, I don't remember if you emailed me from your list or if you texted me, but you were like, hey, I want to put together this course. I'm going to be honest right now, it's an Evernote document and I'm going to do a pre-sale and like your questions and like telling me what's missing here. That'll help us with the curriculum. That was awesome, by the way. Yeah. Like 
I was just like, this is, this is everything I need. <laughs> That's wild. That's crazy. So we, we get that to you. You start going through it. And I remember you booked a, a speaking gig at a college, like up in New England or something. Is that right? Yeah, there was one in Vermont and yep. that was my first time in Burlington. And then there was one in, where was it? I want to say, it's not Duluth. It's some Northeastern Iowa town. That's really pretty. Yeah. I think of the name right now, but it's not coming to mind. So booked a couple gigs, spoke at a couple colleges. Was it something at the time then that you were kind of like, hey, I want to do more of this or just kind of like, hey, I could see doing this from time to time. Or where did you see speaking fitting into what you were doing back then? Definitely a time to time thing. Yeah. And for me now, it's more of a, it's more of a thing that I do to differentiate myself at conferences. Mm -hmm. So I love going to like VidCon, VidSummit. I've been to podcast movement, FinCon, those kind of things. Right. And my strategy when I go to a conference like that is I want to find a way to differentiate myself. So I have greater access to other speakers, people mm -hmm. who I really want to talk to. Not to say that I don't want to talk to other people, but like if Gary Vaynerchuk's going to be at an event or if Peter McKinnon's going to be at an event and I look up to these guys, I'm like, all right, how do I differentiate myself? So, you know, there's more opportunities to talk with those people or to get invited to the speaker's dinners. Well, right. you got to be a speaker. Right. So that's kind of how I do it these days. I use my platform as a way to get booked as a speaker at events like this. And a lot of times I don't actually get paid. I do get my flight comped, my hotel comped, and the ticket comped. But in my mind, it is an investment that allows me to more effectively build relationships and more effectively position myself as an expert within the sort of meta industry that I'm in. So right. not as a college expert, but as a YouTube expert or a workflow expert. Right. So, so even back then and even today, you are doing some speaking, not from the standpoint of, I want to do a, a whole bunch of gigs and get paid as much as possible, mm -hmm. but really you are doing it more as like a, uh, for, for networking purposes, for branding mm -hmm. purposes, for positioning purposes as seeing, being seen in your world as an expert, as an authority. And that's one of the nice things that, that speaking can provide is that mm -hmm. if you're at a conference, if you're at an event and you are a speaker, there's a certain amount of, of cachet that goes along with that, that you're something, you're this big deal, you know, because you're, you're a speaker there. So it sounds like that's kind of been the goal for you with speaking is less about the, the immediate check or I didn't get a check from a, a dollar perspective, but more about some of the other ancillary benefits that speaking may provide. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm well aware of the fact that speaking could provide a, a great living if yeah. I wanted it that way. I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I've been able to build income streams via my website, via YouTube, that I don't have to worry about the income side of things. So right. yes, for me, speaking is just like, how do I cement my position in the industry and how do I sort of differentiate myself? How did you land on that being how you were going to use speaking? Because that's one of, the, one of the good things about speaking is that there's no right or wrong way to do it. And so for some people, mm -hmm. they may say, I want to speak 50 times a year and get paid for all of them. And that's the primary bread and butter of what I do. And that's, you know, for a long time, that's what I did. Or like in your situation, you may say, I want to speak five times a year and I'm fine to do them for free as long as they're at the right events in front of the right audiences because it helps me to build the business in other ways. So how did you land on that's the model that makes the most sense for you with, with speaking? So there's a couple of uh, little elements to this. First being when I speak at an event, it's an event that has other reasons for me to be there. Yeah. So if I'm going out to VidCon, I'm going to see people that I know. I'm going to be able to hang out with friends. I'm going to be able to go to some sessions and learn some stuff. So it's not like I have to book travel to some town, stay in a hotel overnight just to do the speaking. That's not my preference. The other thing is when I started going to these conferences back in the day, like Adobe Max, 
FinCon, these kind of things. I would see people on stage jamming on the business things they love. And I'm like, that looks cool. I want to do that. And that, that kind of drives a lot of my business decisions. Just me seeing somebody do something that I currently don't have the ability to do, thinking that looks cool and figuring out how to do it. Right. Uh, right. So I saw people speaking on stage and sort of uh, chased it like a dog chasing a mail truck. <laughs> so at some point then, as you're building College Info Geek, then the, uh, one of the things that you really got into that you're well known for today is going to be YouTube videos. And so how mm-hmm. did that kind of come into play of you digging more into YouTube? Exact same method there. Yeah. (laughs) I see something cool. I want to do it. This started with podcasting. I was a blogger. I went to Blog World 2012 and I remember going to Pat Flynn's podcasting session. Mm -hmm. And I had been a listener of the Smart Passive Income podcast for quite a while. And he, he was talking about all these benefits that podcasting had brought him chief among them being the fact that people come up to him and say, I feel like I know you. And the primary way that I consume your content is through your podcast. So I went home and I started my own podcast. I was like, I want to be like that. If you could sum up a lot of my business ventures, you could sum it up by saying, I want to be like that. (laughs) So I started my podcast. I went through his podcasting tutorial and I did that for about a year and a half before starting YouTube. And I think that was a great introduction because that built my confidence speaking into a microphone. I didn't have to worry about camera, didn't have to worry about a live audience. All I had to worry about was sitting in my room, worrying about my roommates, maybe hearing me monologuing like a supervillain. Right. But otherwise, just getting those waveforms into audition and getting them up on my podcast host. 2014 rolls around and I start to notice Pat Flynn doing some video. I start to notice the Fizzle guys putting out these beautiful looking videos with those creamy bokeh in the background and everything. And I'm like, that looks really cool. But I don't have the camera equipment to do that kind of stuff. So I kind of put it off for a while until I started watching, incidentally, some video game review channels. So nothing in the business realm whatsoever. But there were these guys clearly didn't have the gear that, you know, the fizzles and SPIs of the world had. But they're just sitting in their bedroom and they're making these hilarious and well-edited videos just talking about their favorite video games. And I'm like, I want to do that. But I probably shouldn't make video game videos because that's not really in my wheelhouse. It's not going to enhance my brand at all. That would be essentially starting a new brand. Yeah. What if I just take the editing elements and some of the jokes and style from my favorite content creators over there and try to marry it with the content that I create, study hacks and stuff like that. Right. So I just started doing videos and you know, there was no intention of being a YouTuber at first. It was more a way to spice up the content on College Info Geek. I saw YouTube as a hosting service. I was yeah. very naive back then about its potential as an audience grower. And I, I do remember there was a fizzle blog post that came out and Chase said, hey, we're going to take a three-minute snippet from one of our courses and just put it here as a blog post because we want to spice things up. And I did that. I had a lot of fun with it. So I did another one the next week and another one the next week. And slowly over time, I started realizing this is more fun than just writing blog posts. Yeah. So again, coming from a position of enjoyment, and artistic expression, I sort of transitioned into becoming a YouTuber. And I think the transition was cemented when I, it was like my seventh or eighth video sort of quote unquote went viral. Yeah. And I kind of got the realization that, oh, there's a big audience here. And there's a right. lot of interaction that I haven't seen on the blog side. 
So if we fast forward to today, kind of give us some numbers for a second. So how many subscribers do you have? How many views do you have? How many videos do you have? Just for some context, give us some, uh, what some of those numbers look like. Uh, I had to check real quick. Okay, here we go. A uh, total of 57,317,000 views and about 1.2 million subscribers. Okay. All right. So 1.2 million subscribers, 57 million views. So bottom line, and, and the reason I ask you to share that is just to, again, kind of set the stage that you know what you're talking about whenever it comes to YouTube and you figured out a, a few things. So uh, I think- Allegedly. It could yeah. have all just too. It could be. It could very well be. So for anyone that's listening right now going like, okay, I'm intrigued by YouTube because one of the things I personally didn't realize and I wasn't aware of is that YouTube is the second biggest search engine on the internet behind Google. And so- Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just these, these things that you don't, you just don't think of as it relates to being a search engine. And so especially whenever it comes to finding a speaker, YouTube can be a really, really strong platform for hosting videos on for being found. So if someone's searching for, you know, a customer service speaker or a sales speaker or a leadership speaker, the more of those videos that you have that are ranking for some of these, for these potential keywords may lead to you getting some speaking gigs out of it. So I'm curious then uh, from your perspective, let's talk through some ideas on if I'm a speaker, I would love to get noticed more on YouTube, probably more than just a demo video, but probably having like a true YouTube channel. What type of content should I be putting out there? What are some things that I need to be thinking through and considering? Well, the first thing I want to mention here is if you're going to get into YouTube as like, if you're coming into it with the intention of using YouTube as an acquisition platform to get you clients, you need to shift your thinking real quick and view yourself as a YouTuber, not as a speaker using YouTube as a marketing platform. Okay. Because I see a lot of speakers who will put up a ton of demo videos or they'll intro every single video being like, what's up? My name's Thomas Frank. I'm a speaker and I do gigs all around the country. Check out my website and subscribe. Now let's get into the content. That's not what people are on YouTube for. 99.9% of the audience that's going to click on your videos in their feed, especially if you're actually going to grow and start to get that organic ball rolling, are going to be people who clicked on the video because they want to learn about the topic that you teased in the thumbnail and title. So become a YouTuber first. Nine out of 10 videos should be topical videos. They're going to teach somebody something that don't really have much of an ulterior motive. And then it's like that jab, 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 right hook concept that Gary Vaynerchuk loves to talk about. On that 10th video, maybe you have an opt-in at the end that, uh, you know, is targeted towards decision makers and organizations that will let them know, hey, I'm a speaker. Or maybe you have a personal website where you've got a downloadable worksheet or something right. and that starts to, to brand you. Um, you can use your channel's branding also to communicate the fact that you're a speaker. But what I want people to take away from this, if nothing else, is that if they're going to get into YouTube, they need to go kind of all in on the content front and make content that YouTube viewers want to watch. And gotcha. let, let their market or let the, the product they're selling, which is themselves as a speaker, sort of take a back step to that. Gotcha. So whenever like, and I think this is a, an important distinction is there is a big difference between like what a, a speaker demo video would be, which is typically going to be a two, three, four minute highlight video that mm-hmm. is typically going to be on someone's website. That's going to be there primarily to sell yourself as a speaker, make mm-hmm. people want to see more, make people inquire about bringing you in and hiring you. So that's fine to have a one of those, or maybe a couple of those on YouTube, but it should, sounds like if you're really serious about building your YouTube presence, that it has to be more than just, here's another clip of me speaking. I guess to take a step back, would that work though? If I'm going to, not necessarily having like a bunch of calls to action of here, come hire me to speak, but here's a, a solid 10 minute teaching clip 
from me as a speaker? Is something like that worth putting up onto YouTube? I, I mean, yeah, why not? So I, I, one thing I got to say is I'm not an expert on what is going to work and what is not going to work on YouTube. Yeah. TED Talks, people watch TED Talks all day long. Yeah. So if you can put a clip of you speaking up that's well-produced and that delivers a message, has a payoff, that could work. Or you could do what I do and stand in front of a camera and have lots of crazy editing. There's, you got to experiment, you know? Yeah. I don't think anybody would have thought that mixing a bunch of weird video game references and doing like the, here, here's like, the best note-taking systems and everyone is represented by a street fighter character. Nobody would have told you in a business podcast that that's what you need to do to succeed. But that video has like a million views on my channel. Uh, So you got to have to use your creativity. You're going to have to do a ton of experimentation. Just remember that you have to think about the audience you're serving at the moment. And that's the audience of YouTube viewers who are looking to be entertained and educated on YouTube. And also that's YouTube's want as well, right? They want to keep people on the site for as long as possible. So they're going to reward content that keeps people on the site for as long as possible. Yeah. So is it better from a speaker perspective to, to approach YouTube and YouTube videos through the, the lens of I'm trying to get um, speaking engagements and I'm trying to position myself as a speaker or better to position myself as a topical expert who happens to speak on this certain topical subject? Expert. Absolutely. Topical expert. Why is yeah. that? So you can communicate that you're a speaker, but I guess like if, if I'm a decision maker, right, and I'm looking to bring somebody into an event, yeah, I'm going to go for the topical expert. I don't, I mean, maybe I think of Gary Vaynerchuk as a speaker and maybe Gary Vaynerchuk isn't a great example here, but I'm going to use him anyway. I think of him first as a social media expert sure. or as an attention expert. He's also a great speaker, you know, and he puts up lots of clips of himself speaking, but he also has all this content that focuses on what he can teach the audience. So at the end of the day, when somebody is making the decision to bring you into their event as a speaker, your ability to entertain the audience, your credentials as a speaker, these are all factors that are going to go into the decision-making process. But the number one factor is what is the audience going to take away from your talk? And is that enough to justify having you on the docket and having you be part of the product I'm selling to the audience, which is the ticket to this event? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder though, like if, if someone's watching the video, are they, if they're watching, let's say I'm just doing a talking head video, let's say I'm a customer service speaker and I'm doing a talking head video, just talking about like, here are the three things that, you know, your, your phone customer support people are are doing wrong that you don't even realize, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. If I'm just doing a talking head video that may communicate my expertise, but it may or may not translate into, can this person actually get up on stage and speak? Maybe they have a really high, highly polished talking head expert video, but would they be a fit for my event? Should I bring them in? So I wonder if, and again, some of this is just kind of speculation of just going through the mind of a decision maker of what they are thinking when they're watching that type of video. I mean, if, if you have somebody to the point where they're thinking that thing in their head where they're like, all right, I'm on board with this person's expertise. They obviously want to talk to a camera. Would they work as a speaker for my event? All right. Now you've got to build some sort of funnel to get them from your YouTube video to something that will sell them. Right. So maybe you do mention your speaker at the end of the video. Like, Hey, if you are a decision maker in your company, if you're the human resources director and you're looking for somebody to come into your you know, company, I can do that. But that would be at the end of the video. Or yeah. maybe you have a downloadable resource for those people. And that, you know, that download page on your website that gives them that has a clip of you speaking that has something else really, you know, really insightful to help them, but also shows them that you can speak. Yeah. 
So should I, as a speaker, having the demo video on your YouTube channel is important, but let's say again, uh, I'm a customer service speaker. Is it good to just create, you know, three, four or five of those videos and then just set it and forget it? And, or is it better to view, you know, view YouTube videos almost like a, a podcast where you need to be putting out regular content or what's the best approach? If the end goal is to be positioned as an expert who gets speaking gigs, what's going to make the most sense? If the end goal is to grow your audience and to grow the number of potential people who could hire you, then you're going to want to be frequent. I can't tell you what the frequency is because I work with educational channels who put out one video a month and have 5 million subscribers. And, you know, I, I watch channels that put out daily content. I think what it's about is building an expectation in your current audience that gets them to click and then you can go very far down the YouTube rabbit hole learning about how the algorithm works. But to sum it up very quickly, I can tell you that once you have an initial audience of of viewers on YouTube, which is tough to build, but once you have that, their reaction to a video informs the algorithm. So if your audience is very enthusiastically clicking on a new video, they're very interested in it, then the algorithm is going to take that sign and use it as an indication that other people who are similar to your audience are probably going to want to see that video too. So it's going to push it out to more people. Yeah. And if you build the expectation in your audience that videos are going to come out on a somewhat regular basis, then they're going to be sort of primed to see that. Gotcha. Okay. So it sounds like I, if I'm going to be doing videos on YouTube, ideally I need to be doing them at some type of regular cadence and not just throw a couple of videos yes. up there on, and, and forget about it in the same way that again, like a, like a podcast, like if you throw up mm-hmm. a couple of podcast episodes and then forget it, you're really not, it's not going to do much. It's not going to gain a lot of traction. And I guess same with yeah. like a, a blog post as well. If I, I put up a couple of blogs and then I walk away from it and I hope that I'm getting any type of results, like it just, it just doesn't work like that. So is that, is that mm-hmm. fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. All right. And uh, especially, you know, with the YouTube, you also have the algorithm to deal with. So with a podcast, with blog posts, there are algorithms in place to accelerate the uh, dispersal of your content beyond what you can do manually, but there, I cannot think of anything that is like the YouTube algorithm in terms of its potential to push your content out. What do you mean by that? So think about podcasting. Where do people go to get their podcasts? Typically iTunes. Right. So you go to iTunes. I have a podcast app. I can tell you that my podcast gets more downloads and subscribers than a lot of the podcasts that are in like the what's hot for education. Mm-hmm. My podcast never shows up there. It'll show up in top podcasts, but top podcasts is like this weird little sidebar offshoot that no one ever clicks. Mm-hmm. So why is it not a what's hot? Nobody really knows what algorithms iTunes uses, but what we do know is that those algorithms are kind of janky and they don't do a great job at promoting a lot of content certainly not as well tailored and you know well coded as the youtube algorithm not to say the youtube algorithm is perfect because sometimes you get like videos of a hot knife cutting butter and they get 20 million views <laughs> but with a podcast like again itunes gives you some potential for algorithmic growth but i think it's not as good yeah. and this is this is coming from somebody who's podcasted for with two podcasts for about 5 years along with doing blogging and YouTubing. But yeah. blogging, like, if you write a stellar article on a specific topic, uh, you can rank well on Google. But there's no, like, what's trending on Google that's going to pick up your article and maybe push it out to people. You could yeah. try Medium or maybe WordPress.com, but there's nothing with the, the audience size that YouTube has. So there's a yeah. huge potential there if you can tap it. So if you are, if you're someone that's going to be creating regular 
content-based videos, uh, again, at whatever cadence, what are some like best practices that we need to be thinking through and, and be aware of? Uh, or what are the things that are really going to make a difference in terms of if the goal is, again, being found ultimately and, and having people view it and hopefully being um, perceived as an expert that, that someone might be willing to hire, uh, like what things should or shouldn't we be doing with our videos? All right. So what, when I talk about succeeding on YouTube, it all comes down to basically three factors, title, thumbnail, and watch time. These are the trifecta, the holy grail of success on YouTube. If you can make a stellar title, a stellar thumbnail, people are going to click. And if you can optimize how long they watch, then the algorithm will push your content out to more and more people. So really it's get them in the door and get them to stick around as much as you can. And for that first part, the title and your thumbnail work in tandem to do that. So let's start with watch time because uh, I recently analyzed a friend's channel to see some of the things that they could improve on. Yeah. And I noticed one of the very first things they were doing in every single video was spending 20 or 30 seconds just sort of introing who they were and why they were qualified to talk about what they're going to talk about. Okay. Now, I totally understand the whole need to position yourself as an expert and to tell people why you're qualified to talk about what you're talking about. But when people click on a YouTube video, you've got their attention for like five seconds before they click off. You got to grab it within those five seconds. So if you're just like, hey, what's up? My name is Trevor. I'm a certified rock climbing instructor with 13 years of experience. And this is my compatriot over here, Jeannie. And you go through like that. Nobody's going to stick around because they clicked that video to learn how to belay properly. So get into it immediately. Here's how to belay. And then at the end, you could talk about where's why I know how to belay. Or you could put that in the description or you could have that be part of your channel about page anything like that. You could watch some of my videos to see kind of what I do to keep the pace up. I'm looking to keep energy high. I'm punching in. I'm using quote graphics and images and all kinds of stuff. Some people don't do that and do just fine, but I'm looking at my videos, number one, from an artistic standpoint, how do I create something that I would want to watch? But number two, how do I keep people's attention sort of engaged the entire time so I can get them watching to the end, not only to optimize watch time, but also so that they are actually there for my calls to action at the end, whether they be a sponsor or whether they be going to my website or following me on Instagram, whatever that may be. Okay. So for title and thumbnail, you will hear all kinds of advice thrown around about titles and thumbnails. You'll hear people say human faces are, you know, super attractive and people are going to click that, which is true. Strong emotions, same thing. But Here's kind of how I synthesize all of this advice into one little chunk of information. What you want to do is create a question in the mind of a potential viewer that has to be answered and also create an implication that clicking the video that you've created and watching it will answer that question. Okay. So if you want a channel that does an amazing job at this, look up the channel Real Life Lore. It's crazy some of the videos he's done. Let's see. His most popular video has 22 million views. And the title is what's the deepest hole we can possibly dig. And then the thumbnail just has this image of a gigantic hole in the ground. I got that pulled up. Yeah. Um, Or no, these are the events that will happen before 2050. (laughs) Or those are the ocean is way deeper than you think. And it has a picture of Mount Everest in the ocean, not even, coming close to touching the bottom. Yeah. Like all these questions, it's like, I have to know. Yeah. What are these questions? To contrast that, let me give you an example of a video that I almost screwed up. So one of my most popular videos on my channel is called 
the most powerful way to remember what you study. And then I have this thumbnail with these note cards and these colored uh, sticky notes and the thumbnail says how to remember more on it. So that video is about a technique called spaced repetition, which a software like SuperMemo and Anki use to help you memorize things more quickly. Now, when I was writing that video, being the productivity and you know academic success nerd that I am, my initial thought was, I'm going to call this video how to use spaced repetition. And then right before I posted it, I had this thought, who is actually going to search for the term spaced repetition in YouTube? <laughs> Or if it shows up in their recommended feed, does the term spaced repetition put a burning question in the mind of a potential viewer? Yeah. They don't know what that term means, but do they care? Like if I'm, if I'm just like, hey, come talk to me to learn about phlogiston, you don't know what that is, but you don't care what phlogiston is. Yeah. It's what people thought fire was made of in the past. So I thought that was just a word you made up. <laughs> nope. It, there's, it's an actual thing. So I thought to myself, all right, what is the problem? that this technique solves. Yeah. Well, it helps you remember things more quickly. Yeah. And it will make you able to pass your tests without having to spend as many hours studying. So then I spent a bunch of time brainstorming titles. Here is how you can spend two hours fewer per week studying. Or the title I ended up on, the most powerful way to remember what you study. Yeah. Now, a lot of people will go too far with this and make clickbait titles yeah, that don't pay right. off. There, there has to be a payoff because if people click in and there's no payoff, then they're, they're not going to stick around. They're going to dislike the video and you're going to start to build a negative reputation as a creator. So I thought that title was fine because in my mind, space repetition is like a temporal hack. It's a way to cut down the amount of time and it's a way to, to sort of edit the times at which you study, which means it can be combined with any other study technique. Yeah. So I was like, I think that is the most powerful way because it can be, it can be combined with anything easily. All, yeah. all you do is adjust the times at which you study. That's awesome. Right. And people apparently agreed with me because two and a half million people have watched that video. Yeah. So it's all about what's that question and my video will answer it for you. There will be a payoff. You'll be satisfied at the end and you'll be entertained while you're watching it. Nice. Any other strategies or tips that people should be aware of if, if, as they're creating videos or thinking videos, thinking even just through concepts of videos? I mean, that, that's a very broad question. So it's kind of tough to, to answer it without like trying to write an entire book here. A few, okay. Or, so a few thoughts like, that I have right ahead. now about thumbnails actually. So if, if you dig into this, I don't know if it's a science or, or topic of vexillology, which is the craft of making flag designs. Okay. You'll learn that many flags are very easy to see at like postage stamp size. So like think of the flag of Italy or, mm -hmm. or the Union Jack or even the American flag. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot going on in that flag, but you can still kind of tell what's going on. Right. Then you look at like a lot of state flags and I'll pick on California's right now. California's flag is not bad but it has this very detailed picture of a bear on it. And then uh -huh. I think there's like even text under the bear. And if you're seeing that flag in the distance, you're not reading that text. Yeah. You probably see the bear, but you're not reading the text. So a lot of people fall into the same trap that very amateur, amateur vexillology people will fall into when they're designing flags, which is that they're designing the thumbnail for their video in Photoshop at a giant size. And they're going to try to shove like a ton of text on it or a ton of elements 
and it looks great to them in Photoshop, but when it's on the YouTube website at like 200 by 100 pixels in that sidebar, nobody can tell what's going on. Yeah. So the best thumbnails are ones that clearly communicate something at a tiny, teeny size, which means that when you're designing your thumbnails, you should zoom out to look at it at a tiny, teeny size. Yeah. Makes sense. Interesting. Well, um, Thomas, this was really helpful, man. If people want to find out more about you and uh, what you're up to and even just check out your YouTube channel and maybe even other YouTube resources you've got, where, uh, where can we go? YouTube.com slash Thomas Frank would be oh. the easiest place to go if you want to see the channels. I'm Tom Frankly on Instagram and Twitter or cool. uh, collegeinfogeek.com if you want to see the blog. Awesome. Thanks, man. We appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show, dude. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that Inver, that Inver interview uh, and conversation with uh, Thomas Frank from collegeinfogeek.com. Again, check out what he's up to on his uh, his YouTube channel as well. Really good stuff there. Like I mentioned to you, if you'd like to check out our free tool agent, stop by and check out myspeakingagent.com, myspeakingagent.com, totally free tool where you can get a database of over a thousand different events that are looking for speakers just like you. So again, stop by, and check it out over at myspeakingagent.com. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We will catch you next time. You're awesome. <laughs>